First, a warning. In this episode, we discuss treatment of enslaved people that includes violence, family separation, child abuse, and domestic violence. As I read about Harriet Tubman, I wonder, when did she rest? In over 20 years as an enslaved woman, nearly a decade as a conductor of the Underground Railroad, and about five years serving in the Civil War, she must have been exhausted. She also had many scars and suffered poor health. Yet there are no stories of her at rest. After serving in the war, Harriet returned to Auburn, New York, where she took care of her family and continued to serve her community in important but unheralded ways. But it is important to remember that even though there was no end to her fight for justice, she was not a restless go-getter bent on making a name for herself or amassing wealth. Harriet Tubman couldn't be further from the greedy workaholic who was married to her work. Our culture today values hard work, busyness, productivity, efficiency, and a perfect resume. We shower people with trophies, honorifics, and magazine covers. We envy the accumulation of wealth and material goods and celebrate those who win, those who accumulate awards. Harriet was never working for these things. Her struggle for liberation took place largely in secret, in the dark. Her military exploits were not followed up with medals or ribbons. Almost all of her work was done unpaid, and she was penniless for most of her life. She was clearly in a struggle for higher purposes. And the primary theme of all of her hard work was to honor others, to give them and herself dignity and the ability to simply be. She never claimed to be in a struggle to let people earn money or to own property or to amass power. She just wanted people to be, to have agency over their lives, and to be able to rest. Rest. Do you ever think about the human struggle to rest? You may think that by rattling off all the things that Harriet Tubman accomplished in life, one of the messages is that you should also work tirelessly, fill your life with missions and struggles. That is not the case. Rather, it is to place the right to rest up there with abolition of slavery, the right to vote, the right to eat and have shelter, and the right to have health care. Fight for your right to rest. But not just because we all deserve rest, but because rest is a direct fight against the culture that created and condoned slavery. I'm Eric Bowman, and this is The Virtue Field. After a heroic fight in the Civil War, which followed years of liberating enslaved people on the Underground Railroad, Harriet Tubman was now well-known across the nation. In 1869, Sarah Bradford wrote the first biography of Tubman, titled Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman. But Harriet just wanted to be at home and opened her home to others. By this time, her parents Ben and Rit Ross had joined her in Auburn, New York, with Harriet's help. They had escaped enslavement in 1857 
and moved to St. Catharines in Canada before finally settling with Harriet in the 1860s. By the end of the war, Harriet Tubman also housed and cared for nieces and nephews, siblings, and other extended family members. She also took in travelers and the aged, and the sick, and never accepted payment. She ran fundraisers for schools and churches, and was always willing to volunteer for those in need. Harriet also married her second husband, Nelson Davis, in 1869. After doing so much work at the national level, Harriet was settling down to care for herself and her family. She farmed a seven-acre plot in her hometown of Auburn, New York. During this ten-year span, both her father Ben Ross and her mother Rit died. In 1888, Harriet's husband, Nelson Davis, died of tuberculosis. These were difficult years for Harriet and her family. Her property was crowded with family members and transients who needed her help. They relied on Harriet for almost everything. But Harriet and the family had no money and few ways to work to earn a living. During the farming season, they would farm. Harriet sold baked goods. She hired herself out as a domestic laborer. She organized fairs to raise money for freedmen. And she continued to petition the government for back pay for her service during the war. When she couldn't work to make ends meet for the large family under her care, she relied on the generosity of neighbors and some of her famous abolitionist friends to get by. At one point, Harriet and her brother John were accused of a scheme to steal gold, an event that marred her reputation in some circles. Rest was hard to come by. There was so much work to be done to live a life in freedom. People who were born into a life of means, or who have wealth because they've exploited others, don't have to live a life like this. At around this time, Harriet became more involved in the suffragist cause, a cause she had long believed in and worked for. For years, the abolitionist cause was directly linked to the cause for women's suffrage. Reformers saw the obvious connection between calling for rights for both women and black people. Early feminists used the image of a chained enslaved woman to graphically illustrate the oppression of women. However, this symbol overstated how much some suffragists truly cared about enslaved women. Although black women like Harriet joined and supported the suffrage movement, they often suffered from racism at the hands of some white women within their organization. The intersectional nature of the oppression of black women meant that they suffered injustice on the basis of their race and their sex. Many of the men who led the abolitionist movement would stand in the way of rights for women for strategic reasons. For example, the Republican Party of Wendell Phillips and Horace Greeley encouraged suffragists to focus on black male suffrage because it was simply not the time for women. They were fearful of going too far, pushing too hard, appearing too radical. They were willing to accept rights for people in stages. For her part, suffragist Susan B. Anthony was indignant. She believed we could have, we must have, both the vote for women and for black people. Based on her fight for rights, it seems obvious to me that Harriet would agree with Anthony. Harriet wouldn't compromise for anything less than full equality and liberation for all. When asked if she supported women's suffrage, Harriet reportedly responded, I have suffered enough to believe it. White people, and white men in particular, had the privilege of patience, the ability to focus on small steps so as not to upset the system. 
a white man has the privilege of not having to think about black liberation at all. If he grows tired of the fight, his life will carry on regardless. But even the great Frederick Douglass had to compromise in ways that Harriet Tubman could not. For Douglass, the right to vote was literally a matter of life and death. Without the franchise, a black person was completely at the will of the white world, and this could mean a black person could die or be enslaved and have no say in the matter. For this reason, Douglas, perhaps begrudgingly, claimed that reform must start with the rights of black men. It was so urgent that it could not be slowed down by the debate over women's suffrage. In the 1880s, Harriet rededicated herself to the suffragist cause. She gave major speeches in Boston and Washington, D.C. She was invited to meetings and celebrated at dinners in her honor. By all accounts, she was an inspirational speaker who commanded respect. However, she often had to raise travel funds herself. On one occasion, she sold a cow to raise money to travel to New England. Her struggle for liberation continued quietly at home as she struggled to make enough money just to make her place in the world. She has so many things in her way that prevented her from resting and prevented her from being her full self. She didn't live to see women vote. While men were granted the right to vote, the franchise was denied as the enslaving South gave way to Jim Crow. She had no money and constantly had to work to feed herself and her family. Even when invited to speak, she had to scratch to make enough money to pay for her own travel. Also late in her life, the pain and pressure from her head injuries grew so exhausting that Harriet chose to have brain surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. She chose not to have anesthesia and instead bit down on a bullet, just like the other Civil War soldiers, as the doctor sawed open her skull. Historian Kate Clifford Larson quoted Samuel Hopkins. Harriet lay motionless as a log, mumbling prayers through teeth clenched on a bullet. If self-determination, the right to vote, tells us one important thing that Harriet Tubman believed in, her major pursuit at the end of her life tells us something else. For over 15 years, she dreamed of creating a rest home for elderly black people. Harriet saved enough money from her speaking engagements, her farming, her labor, and the military pension that she was eventually granted to allow her to purchase more land. She purchased a tract of about 25 acres adjacent to her own property. She donated this land to the African Methodist Episcopal Church in Auburn, New York, to build the Harriet Tubman Home for Aged and Indigent Colored People. She created a place for elderly black people, many formerly enslaved, to live out their years in dignity. When it finally opened, residents were charged $100 to live there. Tubman remarked, Instead of requiring they have $100 to enter, I would have required they have no money to enter. This is the exact opposite of the message we often get in our culture. You must have the money to have a home to earn medical care, to pay for the basics of life. You can only attain rest when you have earned it. We celebrate people for the money they make. 
This is not how Harriet Tubman thinks. People deserve human dignity regardless of their ability to pay for it. Harriet died at the home for the elderly named after her on March 10, 1913. All of Harriet's efforts late in her life seem to lead towards the same thing. To me, she seems to be getting her affairs in order, getting her family settled, so that she can simply live her life without having to fight all the time. It's a form of rest, being at peace. There were many obstacles in the way, and it seems that rest never came easy. Building a homestead, taking care of her family, taking care of her health, assuring that others can attain rest in their old age. I see Harriet working so that all of those in her care can simply be. This is very countercultural. They don't need to earn. People don't exist simply to be part of a larger economic system. This is exactly what Moses did for the Israelites. Walter Brueggemann, Christian theologian, pastor, and scholar of the Hebrew Scriptures, describes how Moses liberated the Israelites by breaking the economic system of the Egyptian pharaoh. The central message, according to Brueggemann, was the importance of the Sabbath, the day of rest. In the book of Exodus, Pharaoh forced the Hebrew slaves to work ceaselessly, a frenzied effort to gather resources and security for the Egyptian kingdom. When Moses liberates his people, Pharaoh's dominance is replaced by a God who emphasizes rest. Brueggemann notes that the Sabbath, the day of rest, is mentioned more than any commandment in the book of Exodus. This God of rest emphasizes that the goodness of creation and the value in human beings does not rely on their ability to work and their endless production. American culture, informed by the European Enlightenment, and the famous Protestant work ethic, reinforces the message of the Pharaoh. You need to earn your liberation. You must secure your own future through your own hard work. You prosper or perish through your own efforts, not via gifts from society. Rugged individualism prevails. This system, the Pharaonic system, promotes anxiety and restlessness, according to Brueggemann and it pushes us to abuse others and violate the dignity of groups of people as we exploit them for our own gain. Remember what Howard Thurman said, While our personality is our own to foster, it is affirmed and allowed to flourish or denied and destroyed by the community. We live in community. Community is the ultimate end for Thurman, not individualism. I think Brueggemann agrees. For him, the keeping of the Sabbath is key because it breaks the cycle of anxious, unfettered productivity and allows for the flourishing of the individual and the community. Pharaoh, like those who enslaved Harriet Tubman and millions of black Americans, was motivated by production, anxiety, greed, wealth, and power. These are false gods, worshipped in place of the God of the Sabbath, the God of rest. 
To Brueggemann, if we break this cycle and worship the God of rest, we can now see others as worthy of love and respect. If one looks at the Ten Commandments, handed down to Moses after he liberated the Jewish people, we see that love and respect of neighbor comes after we acknowledge the Sabbath. When we break the cycle of frenzied work, we see that people are not commodities to be exploited or competitors to be eliminated. This is literally what Harriet Tubman did when she liberated enslaved people. It is also what she continued to do after she escaped the South. She fought to end the slave system. She advocated for basic rights like the right to vote. She built a home for elderly black people, the most literal example of her belief in rest. This is another parallel between Harriet and Moses that I believe Brueggemann would recognize. After their liberation, the Israelites are delivered to a fertile homeland, a place of plenty. Brueggemann reminds us that this is a place where it is easy to forget the God who liberated them. Brueggemann says, Moses anticipates that if they are not alert to the God of emancipation, they will end up right back in another system of coercion. For Brueggemann, remembering the Sabbath is to remember to rest, and to rest is a form of resistance. Because this one day breaks the pattern of coercion, all are like you, equal, equal worth, equal value, equal access, equal rest. So Harriet's fight to liberate the enslaved and to end slavery is just a start. Now they were approaching the promised land. She remembered the God of emancipation. She fought for a measure of women's equality with the right to vote. She spent her later years working odd jobs to raise funds to support the many people living in her care. She donated land to build a rest home for elderly black people. She did all of this in a way that broke the system of coercion and anxiety, the American culture that mirrored Pharaoh's culture, so that others could keep the Sabbath, others could rest. If rest is a form of liberation, then she is fighting to liberate right up to her death. Notice her emphasis on rest. Add this to her constant giving of her money and you see that Harriet Tubman was not about accumulating wealth or titles. When we rest, we simply exist. The right to just be. In an achievement-based society, we are preoccupied with resumes, wealth, awards, material goods, and ownership. Harriet's emphasis on rest tells me that even though she was a doer, she recognized that she wasn't just created to do to earn, or to work. She was created to be herself, above all, detached from any of those accomplishments. Catholic priest and spiritual writer Henry Nouwen said it well when he said, I suspect that we too often have lost contact with the source of our own existence and have become strangers in our own house. We tend to run around trying to solve problems of our world while anxiously avoiding confrontation with that reality wherein our problems find their deepest roots, our own selves. In many ways, we are like the busy executive who walks up to a precious flower and says, what for God's sake are you doing here? Can you get busy somehow? And then finds the flower's response incomprehensible. I am sorry, but I am just here to be beautiful. 
how can we also come to this wisdom of the flower that being is more important than doing? How can we come to a creative contact with the grounding of our own life? Now, I grant you, it is hard to say that Harriet Tubman is someone who took time to rest. Look at how tireless she was. But through her actions and her life, I can see that she was working so hard that we might be able to rest. By giving freely to anyone who needed it, by working for the liberation of all people without even considering whether they deserved it, Harriet Tubman was living a religion that she clearly believed in a religion that valued people as the children of God, the God of emancipation, the God of the Sabbath. Harriet Tubman's actions were spontaneous. She acted because she could do nothing else but act. She wasn't concerned about earthly glory or acclaim. Like the flower, she was just there to be beautiful. When she realized that, it gave her unmatched strength. Her friend Frederick Douglass was asked to write a letter of reference on Harriet's behalf as a biography was being written about her. Here is Douglas's famous response. Dear Harriet, I am glad to know that the story of your eventful life has been written by a kind lady and that the same is soon to be published. You ask for what you do not need when you call upon me for a word of commendation. I need such words from you far more than you can need them from me, especially where your superior labors and devotion to the cause of the lately enslaved of our land are known as I know them. The difference between us is very marked. Most that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been in public, and I have received much encouragement every step of the way. You, on the other hand, have labored in a private way, I wrought in the day, you in the night. I have had the applause of the crowd and the satisfaction that comes of being approved by the multitude, while the most that you have done has been witnessed by a few trembling, scarred, and footsore bondmen and women whom you have led out of the house of bondage and whose heartfelt God bless you has been your only reward. The midnight sky and the silent stars have been the witnesses of your devotion to freedom and of your heroism. Excepting John Brown, of sacred memory, I know of no one who has willingly encountered more perils and hardships to serve our enslaved people than you have. Much that you have done would seem improbable to those who do not know you as I know you. It is to me a great pleasure and a great privilege to bear testimony for your character and your works, and to say to those to whom you may come that I regard you in every way truthful and trustworthy. Your friend, Frederick Douglass.
Virtue Field is brought to you by the Revolution Ethics Project. It's written and hosted by me, Eric Bowman, and produced and scored by Echo Finch. <laughs>